We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley with Bob Brandon, and we are doing a book review of Dominion and Dynasty. And we're still in chapter one. So how are you today, Bob? I'm good. So (laughs) the way you said that, when when we discussed, you know, what was going on, you know, we discussed, you know, a little up to date with each other. Right. So last last week I was down there with you. And of course, because I was on my way to this swim meet in Austin and you had a funny comment. I was telling you how many heats of the mile there were at this swim meet. And then you you said, yeah, Lori, when you guys first got involved in swimming, was commenting on, boy, these swim meets are really long. And what did KO say to her? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Amelie was in the swim meet. KO's her dad. Uh-huh. And uh, he said, yeah, if a doctor ever gave me three days to live, I would probably spend it at a swim meet because they last forever. <laughs> Oh boy, it did. There were 45 heats of the mile. So anybody listening that well in a typical understood... heat has eight to ten lengths. Yes. And so, you know, this pool at Austin that's broken into two 25-yard pools. So you're swimming two heats at a time. So that reduces, you know, you can cut in half essentially the grand total of heats, but still 22 heats of the mile. Those are going to take about 20 minutes a piece to run. Crazy. That's a long time. Well, um, could I summarize what we, well, a couple things. I'll summarize what I've been getting from this book, but he's talking about the importance of having a literary approach to reading and studying the Bible. Okay. That's too often that scholars can't see the forest for the trees because they are focused on individual verses or passages or, or books. So that's one thing I took away. And I was reading in the end of Second Samuel yesterday, part of the you know daily reading stuff. And I came to Second Samuel 23, 5, and something stood out to me. Oh, good. Let's hear it. Five says, My dynasty is approved by God, for he has uh-huh. made a perpetual covenant with me. And I thought, ah, dynasty. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's one of those instances where it's not as if you've never read that verse before. Right. But then when you have new information in your mind, it jumps out. Yeah. 
so that's exciting. So yeah, his book is called Dominion and Dynasty. And remember, uh, we're he's given us a little hint, but he's going to go into a little bit more in a different place about the gene, the significance of the genealogies. And David's like the culmination of the genealogies, right? And right. so, right, that when you see um, genealogy, just replace that in your mind with dynasty. And then when you see land, you know, the theme of land, either the word or the theme of land being discussed, think dominion. Okay. So that's that's why his book is called Dominion and Dynasty. Yeah. So good good job on your reading. Nice. You know, the other what else? What else did you summarize from this book so far? Well, I'm a little bit uh, confused as to what we have talked about and what I've read for us to talk about. But something that's real interesting is when he talks about the Tanakh uh -huh. and the order of the books with Chronicles at the end. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you know, that's got the genealogies, Genesis and Chronicles. So that's yeah, like kind of seven, seven chapters of them to start yeah. the book. Yeah, it's intriguing to me. Um, well, they caused me a lot of grief when I was formatting the Net Bible and <laughs> dealing with all those genealogies. <laughs> so, well, how, so how does that? How is that a problem for formatting? Oh, just um, the repetition of it, or yeah, just you know, trying to figure out when to <laughs> for certain words and you know, so. <laughs> okay. Um, but no, the the order of the Tanakh versus our order of, you know, the English Bible, which is mm -hmm. chronologically. And so I find it intriguing, you know, what does that, the Jewish order do for our mm -hmm. understanding. And so we'll be getting into that too today, I think. Correct. We'll, we'll arrive at that point. So I, I guess to add on to that, the biggest thing I would take away from Dempster so far is the significance of what you might call macro reading of the yeah. text. So, you know, big picture ideas, not just the minutiae. You referred to that when you said, don't miss the forest for the trees. So in other words, I think the focus on the forest at large is, is really important. And what we spent most of the time talking about on the last podcast in essence was, uh, the pair of lenses you use mm -hmm. to, to read the text. So in other words, instead of, if we could extend the lens metaphor, instead of using a microscope on the text, which we often, right, that was a lot of our training in school. It was microscopic analysis of verb, of verbs and stuff like that and participles. right participles and all that. So, you know, what tense and all that sort of thing. It, well, as opposed to that, let's let's look at the text through binoculars or through a telescope, as opposed to a microscope, and you get a a very rich picture. So okay. that that was a lot of what we covered. So we talked. The way we ended was I wanted to refer to a historical document called the Letter of Aristeas because. 
we also discussed, you know, is the Old Testament a unified book or is it just a collection of scrolls? Right. And he he spent some time on that. Mm -hmm. So Aristeus clarifies that the Jews thought of this as one unified whole. Well, so does Josephus. So let's read a little bit about Josephus. He, for those who might not know, Josephus, like around the time of Christ, right, maybe a little bit later, one generation after Jesus, and he was a Jewish, uh, he might have been a, was he a rabbi or a Pharisee? He was very tra trained in the scriptures, but he ended up being a general in the uh, Jewish army, and kind of switch sides during their, was, their rebellion. Yeah. I knew he was a historian. I didn't know he was a general. Yeah. And he switched, switched sides and, but not to impose harm on the Jews. Really. He's seeing the, you know, the tide sweep them away. And he's like, joins the other side so that he can really beg for mercy for the Jews. And so he wrote a number of works essentially explaining the significance of the Jews to the Romans. Like, don't wipe these people out. Right? They, they're very significant in history. So that that's the macroscopic okay. view of, of Joseph. So he says this, uh, Dempster says, this historical point, you know, concerning like the unity of the text, of course, is due to the theological premise that the books were believed to be a conceptual unity because behind the many human authors stood a single author, God. In a classical exposition of this concept, Josephus explains to his Greek audience that the reason the Jews do not have a multiplicity of books that contradict one another, but only 22 in which is found no disharmony, is that they come from a single divine author. So here's the quote from Josephus. For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us disagreeing from and contradicting one another, but only 22 that contain the records of all the past times, which are justly believed to be divine. Indeed, the many texts were demonstrated. So that's the end of the quote. So indeed, Dempster continues, the many texts were understood to be one text, sometimes simply called the scriptures, the scripture, the Torah, <laughs> the book of the covenant, or even the book of God. So that sort of concludes the historical study of his his point that um, what we call the what we call the Old Testament was considered by the Jews in a general sense to be one unified book. So if that's the case, right, then you need to start studying it as a book, not just the individual chapters, we might say but noticing a chapter's place within the overall structure, very important. So he's going to go on to make some macro observations that I think are critical. So I'm going to, I'm going to read him for a little bit. So he goes on to say, as mentioned earlier, 
Within the biblical text itself, there was an awareness that the many books were a unity. There's an exceedingly rich intertextuality in which there are many linguistic and conceptual echoes throughout scripture. Later biblical books consciously echo and initiate and imitate events, concepts, and language found in earlier books. Creation, exile, and occasionally return form a recurring pattern that is stitched into the biblical narrative fabric. So before I read on, how often do you suspect you see that pattern? Creation, exile, and return. It's so common, Hampton. Yes, and I mean, that's the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation in one, <laughs> right? Yes, yes, it's the whole Bible, and yet it's also repeated more microscopically. Right, right. Often. It's clear that the authors are doing that. So he goes on. At the beginning, there's the creation of Adam and Eve, the placing of them in the Garden of Eden, and the judgment of exile and death. So creation, judgment, exile, right? So, but think about just in that sentence and refer back to the title of the book, the creation of Adam and Eve. There's the dynasty, mm -hmm. right? And where are they put in Eden? That's the dominion. And then the exile, right, possibly disrupting the dominion. So how are we going to solve that? So anyway, he goes on. Cain is soon born. So the creation of Cain and experiences the judgment of exile for the murder of his brother. It's just such a common sequence. The growth of the nations. So the creation of nations into a great power leads to the sin at Babel and exile as they're condemned to be dispersed throughout the earth. We don't usually read that story, you know, the Tower of Babel within that theme. No, we don't. And yet, but it, there it, but it fits. There it sits. So um, Abram is called into being, so the creation of Abram, to go to a land where he lives at times, where he leaves at times because of a lack of faith, only to return later. So there's that pattern again, creation, fall, exile, stuff like that. His descendants experience exile in Egypt and are brought back to the land. Their descendants also undergo exile before returning. Frequently, the return is described in terms that echo the original creation and the placing of the first human pair in the Garden of Eden. Creation language often is employed to signal the return. That's true. So you, you see that heavily at the end of the flood. Mm -hmm. um, heavily. So next paragraph, because we're going to get into some good stuff. But this typological patterning occurs not only with such major motifs and with my, 
but with minor details as well. The story of the rape of the Levite's concubine at the end of the book of Judges. So let's pause there. So you have that in your mind, right? At the end of Judges, there's just this terrible um, right. rape of the guy's concubine. Um, and it gets a lot of detail, right? You, you get a long section covering that. So keep that in your mind. Is that an echo of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the attempted gang rape of the angels visiting Lot? So in other words, as you're reading at a macroscopic level, think to yourself, have I seen this before? Right. Right. So, so this woman gets raped at the end of Judges and your brain should trigger i've seen that before where was that oh at sodom and gomorrah yeah i had highlighted the sentence the canonically aware reader makes the connection at the end of the period of the judges israel has become sodom that's the conclusion you should draw and and to validate that like or am i reaching for that or is that just you know my own imagination trying to piece things together no that's in the text explicitly, and here's where. So if there's any doubt, Isaiah connects the dots by addressing Israel in the following way. Hear the word of the Lord, O princes of Sodom. Give ear to the Torah of our God, O peoples of Gomorrah. Now, that's clear. Yeah, and Ezekiel does something similar too. Yes, yeah, so the the biblical author, you know, the the humanness of the biblical authors is explicit. You can tell Isaiah's been reading the Bible. And he's reading it at all levels, microscopically, macroscopically, and that that's formed their worldview such that Everything echoes in the scripture. Maybe that's an overstatement, but there's so much echo in there. God's saying the same basic things over and over and over. So it's a really rich reading when you, when you start reading at a macroscopic level. Remember, you know, it's very different than our culture. I've said this a number of times, but it, it bears repeating. It's fun for me to repeat anyway. By the way, what's the mother of all learning? Repetition. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, I went blank. I know I need that. <laughs> so um, if, if we could say it in these crass terms, here's what Isaiah had for his education. In kindergarten, he had Bible. <laughs> in first grade, he had Bible. In second grade, he had Bible. Right? right we have we have all different kinds of things they they had that was their worldview so you know soaked into them through and through so these things were very obvious to them but let's read on because he makes some more really good uh observations in the next paragraph moreover the final compilers of the biblical text ensured that the text was to be understood as a unity. There are not only major groupings of books, 
but editorial splices that join major groupings of the books with each other. Therefore, both theological and literary points are made simultaneously. For example, at the beginning of each of the major sections of the Hebrew Bible, there's an extraordinary emphasis on the word of God. See, I, I never read it that way. Mm -mm. Well, let's, let's listen to him detail that because that's fascinating. The Bible begins, so, you know, the sections, the Torah, right, would be the first section. So the first section of the first section begins with the word of God creating reality. And its first work is to create light, thus establishing the rhythm of the day and the night. That's Genesis 1. Three to, three to five. The text proceeds to describe the first human beings and their residence in the Garden of Eden, which is maintained only by organizing their lives around the word of God. Genesis 2, 4 to 25. Now, is that, just pause there for a second. Is that typically the conclusion we draw? from Genesis 1 and 2, that Adam and Eve were to organize their lives around the word of God. And that's been like lesson number one in, <laughs> in every Christian's life from then on. That's your first goal. Mm -hmm. our, our overall goal is dominion over the earth, rule the earth. But the way you do that is specifically you organize your life around the word of God. That's, I, I think very few people draw that conclusion when they sit down and read Genesis. But that's clearly there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I love this book for pointing these things out. But let's get to the next one. So the next section of the Bible would be um, the prophets. That sounds strange to us. Because when we say, you know, the prophets, I think typically, oh, oh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, well, they actually would consider Joshua as the beginning of the prophets. So, right. so in Josh, so that was Genesis, one, the early chapters of Genesis that focus on the word of God. Here's how Joshua starts, the next section of the Hebrew Bible. Joshua, which commences the second major grouping of the biblical books, the prophets, contains an exhortation requiring the new Israelite leader to meditate day and night on the Torah to ensure the success of Israel's conquest of Canaan and to be enabled to enjoy the fruits of the new Eden. How about those connections? Yeah. Isn't that exactly what Adam and Eve were instructed to do? And mm -hmm. so he, he's instructed the same way. And Canaan is pictured as a new Eden. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So then next, near the beginning of the third and last grouping of the books. So that's the writings. So Genesis through Deuteronomy, that's the law. Okay, their, their word for that is the Torah. 
And then the next group is the prophets. And that begins with Joshua. And that group of books they would call the Nevi'im. That's their word for prophets. And then the, the final section is what they call the writings. And their word for that is the Ketuvim. That begins, right, with the Psalms. And then that's the, the T, N, and K are put together as Tanakh. That right. That's right. So what I just, yes, exactly. Hampton. So what I just detailed out, they would make that into one word, the Torah, the, so the Torah, the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, the T, the N and the KH, they just call it the Tanakh. Right. So it's like an acronym. Right. So, okay. So uh, the writings Near the beginning of the third and last grouping of books, the writings, Israelites are urged to meditate on the Torah day and night in order to find success and become like trees planted in a garden alongside streams of gushing water. So each of the, their major sections of the scriptures begin with this compelling admonition to organize your life around the words of God. But I, I, I bet you give me some numbers, Hampton, you're better at this. <laughs> if you, right. If you pulled American Christians, would they say that? I mean, yes, no. they'd agree with the sentiment. I went to, hey, I went to seminary and I wouldn't have said that. Correct. That's why I know you might have found it strange at first, but that's why I wanted to do this book because he's making those kind of observations that to me, you literally make the hair on my neck stand up. It's like, oh, and I'm so embarrassed right, to never have seen that. Yeah. So, so I, I love this again, my picture for what we're embarking on in you know the next few weeks while we cover this book is just as you listen to the podcast just imagine yourself in this very large comfortable reading chair and you're sitting you're a child but a mature child not an infant and you're sitting in God's lap and he's in the in the reading chair and he's got his arms around you and he's holding the Bible in front of you. And he's going, see? <laughs> and hopefully we are seeing. Mm -hmm. But that's just such joy for me to, to look at those things. Now, oddly enough, I am going to quibble with Dempster. Okay. In a minute. But I think you like him. You still have a problem. <laughs> I think he's just fantastic, uh, but I do have an issue because he's going to talk about plot and um, well, let me just introduce it that, that I am going to have a quibble with him, but I'm going to get, we're going to get to the concept of plot and that's where I'm going to gently nuance. Let's say it that way. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to gently nuance 
Dempster. But now let's move to the next section. So the next section is the present study, a literary approach in biblical theology. So in his first paragraph, you know, halfway through that paragraph under that section, he says, it's surely helpful for Christians to look at the Bible of their founder, right? So that that's a reference to Jesus, right? So what, mm -hmm. what did the Bible look like to Jesus in his day? And I understand his day is eternal, but I mean, <laughs> as he took on flesh, you know, was incarnate, as he ministered on earth, as he walked on earth. Like, what did Peter, what did John think the Bible was? So, as it probably appeared to him, too often Christians have let the New Testament dominate interpretation of the Old without first trying to engage the latter in a meaningful way that that's true. And, it, but there's reason for that. that that's true, but it's not a blame, you know, like it's not, you shouldn't do that. Well, you know, that was a related thing is, is that the net Bible, um, we felt like we should not let the new Testament influence our translation of the old. And so like in Isaiah 7, 14, is he talking about a virgin standing there on the edge of the or a young girl or a young woman? Yes. And so um, if you don't know Matthew, you know, if you only know what's going on in 700, you're going to say young woman. Then yes. And so Genesis 3, 15, you know, some translations say strike his bruises, heel and crush his head. Mm -hmm. but you wouldn't know that till you get to like Romans 14 and the whole <laughs> Christology and you look backwards and the same Hebrew word is used in both situations. So you should make, you know, call it strike strike and not read your new Testament theology back into the, to the text and not too yeah. many translations do that. Had that as a guiding principle. Right. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting to me, even as I listen to you, and we're going to talk about another instance in in a minute. And I'm, I'm very curious about your opinion that what we're going to look at shortly. But you, you can see within the word strike that it could mean like strike really hard, <laughs> like like strike as in crush. Correct. But, but you, you wouldn't necessarily know that to push it that far at the beginning when, when you first read it. Yeah. So, so that's, that's your author's um, conclusions is let's let that unfold the way it unfolded in time. Right. Progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. So he goes on to say at the bottom of that first paragraph under the present study, the narrative framework of the text itself to bring out the biblical storeroom, new treasures, as well as old. That's, you know, I just, I didn't read that entire sentence, but that's an important cut. Man, I love that in the New Testament when, when um, Jesus says to the disciples, you know, have you understood all these things? And they say yes. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, not sure. I'm not so sure you did. <laughs> yeah. But, 
but right there, there that's an echo of the New Testament, right? Uh, the disciples, like uh, a guy, you know, the owner of a house that brings out old treasures and new treasures. And um, I let that just strikes close to my heart. Mm-hmm. I've, I've always felt like that was a job description for me. <clears throat> so uh, next paragraph, this text is named the Tanakh by the synagogue, an acronym which points to the alleged unity of this material as well as of its three main subdivisions, the Torah consisting of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Nevi'im, that's the prophets comprising Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the Twelve. And then the Ketuvim, the writings, composed of Ruth, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Lamentations, Daniel, Ezra, or Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. So, he says, many scholars have used a literary approach to interpret smaller units of texts. It has worked well for narrative, but rarely has it been used at the text level, probably for some of the reasons already mentioned. This is certainly an oversight, for it could be particularly helpful, since one of the main tasks of literary of a literary approach is to dis- try to discern the overall message or central theme of a text. And this coincides with the main task of biblical theology, which is the description of the conceptual unity of the biblical text. Now that fascinates me because I would not have necessarily have defined biblical theology that way. No, I was just thinking the same thing. It gives a whole new meaning to yeah. that. I thought of biblical theology as what does you know this one book say about something? Yes. What is yes. John? What does John say about the theme of light, for example? Yeah, and then right in contrast, and what does Paul say about it? And that right. would be a subtly different. It obviously would cohere. Those are legitimate pursuits, but this yes. is, yeah. Yes, I I really like the way he said that, you know, that, that essentially biblical theology is describing the conceptual unity of the biblical text. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he says, a prime purpose of literary studies is to grasp the big literary picture through analysis of here we go, plot and theme. The goal of biblical theology is to grasp the big theological picture through analysis of the theological views of the various biblical texts. Many scholars working in the area of biblical theology have given up on this task due to perhaps an admission that there's not one theology but many. And that's wrong, but they shouldn't give up on that task. They should pursue it. So now I'm going to skip forward 
to some of his uh, conclusions at the end of chapter one, Hampton. So in my book, I think you have it as an e-book. Is that correct? I do. I do. So I, I have, this is page 42 for me. I'm not sure that helps you, but it's the last couple paragraphs of chapter one. So he starting to make some conclusions and he says this simply means that just as an individual book within the canon can be read as a text with a beginning a body and a conclusion with the various parts related to the whole and vice versa so the canon should be read in the same way so like the whole tanakh the beginning the end and the middle you have to consider those macro approaches. Right. So this means that the overall design of the Tanakh provides a hermeneutical, remember that essentially just means interpretation, hermeneutical lens, so an interpretive lens through which its contents can be viewed. Canonization provides a literary context for all the texts, creating one text from many. The fact that the Hebrew canon is structured in terms of narrative sequence with commentary means that canonization does not flatten the text into a one-dimensional uniformity. Rather, it provides for evolution, diversity, and growth. In other words, progress of revelation within an overarching framework in which the various parts can be related to the literary whole. This literary theological approach has much promise since if it is the case that the Hebrew canon is also a text with a definite beginning, middle and ending and plot, then the task of discovering a fundamental theme becomes not an exercise in futility, but an imperative of responsible hermeneutics. So his last little paragraph, this book whose plot line stretches from beginning to the latter days, from Adam to the son of man is hardly a rag bag of literary relics. Rather, it's a remarkable story that assimilates all its texts into a comprehensive framework. It begins at the beginning. <laughs> my favorite sentence so far yeah. uh, so he's mentioned plot a couple times now we're going to dive into chapter two and and my nuance of Dempster okay um, so chapter two says the beginning middle and ending of the Tanakh a preview of the storyline and then in parentheses of well, let me not say it yet. Let me maybe get some wheels turning. How how would you summarize this entire thing? It's and it I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong. I just want to show how Dempster did it. And um I want people to kind of think it through on their own. Mm -hmm. Like he has blank to blank. And I'll fill in those words in a second. So three simple words to describe the beginning, 
um, through the end, right? The beginning, the middle, and ending of the Tanakh. So think that through. And here's how Dempster did it. Adam to David. So if that's... He, he left off a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> so let me think. That strikes... I did not plan to do this, Hampton, but that's making me think of something. Paul does a similar thing to start Romans. Anyway, he says, so Romans chapter 1, verse 1, from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant of David. So probably the most, wouldn't you say, powerful book of the New Testament, Romans. Right. Right up front. First sentence refers to a genealogy. Right? Mm -hmm. God's son, the son of David. So then how about the very first book of the New Testament? So uh, Matthew, of course, starts with genealogy. Let me get the your your page you have so many pages in your Bible. <laughs> so get you a noteless version. <laughs> so here's how um, Matthew, yeah, that's right. Here's how Matthew summarizes his genealogy. So his first 16 verses are the genealogy of Jesus. The New Testament starts with a genealogy. So anyway, verse 17. So and and we've already said, right? When you see genealogy, think dynasty. So then he summarizes his first 16 verses by saying, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to, to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. But think of those divisions, right? Isn't that... Isn't that striking those themes again? Mm -hmm. Like, right, the exile and the return, right? Yeah. So you, you can't really, re if you're really reading the, the Bible, you see the, the focus on Jesus begins with those same foci that God guided the entire Old Testament. It's the same story. Like Matthew, Matthew and Paul got it. <laughs> right. Sounds like they got it. Sounds like they're good readers of the text. So let's go back to uh, Dempster. He's going to talk about, this is chapter two, the beginning, the middle, and ending of the Tanakh, a preview of the storyline, Adam to David. So as Aristotle once observed, plot is the crucial element in a narrative. It's soul. A good story requires a beginning, a middle, and an ending a narrative whole, a well-constructed plot, therefore, 
must either must neither begin nor end at haphazard, but conform to these principles. In particular, plot refers to a meaningful or purposeful arrangement of incidents or events in the text from beginning to end. Aristotle states the obvious for a literary work, and a clear understanding of its beginning and ending will help the reader to determine its plan and organization, which clarifies its overall meaning. The beginning sketches the context, providing background information and introducing the main characters and themes of the work. This is the writer's chance to indicate what the subsequent content, the middle, will be about. In modern literature, a title is used, as well as an introduction to state the principal theme. But in ancient times, this convention was not used. Therefore, an interpreter must look for other clues to discover the topic of a written document. So I read that at length um, in order to nuance him significantly okay because i i think he left out something that's critical but i wanted to to make another observation before i did that you're not necessarily the sports fan that i am you're you're much more of a a golf fan as far as far as sports sorry i knocked over my, my little thing here you're much more of a a uh, golf fan but like around olympic times you know, a lot of people have their TVs tuned in to that fantastic competitive event. If you just watch a race or a, a competition and someone wins, okay, that's exciting. But what the networks have learned to do is like provide a background. Oh, this guy grew up right before you watch him race. This guy grew up in such and such a place. And he had these kind of parents and, oh, it was hard to get into college. It gives the background. Yeah, and well, then, I know that, like, you know, my famous thing is when I go to a Super Bowl party, I, my question <laughs> I ask when I walk in is, who's playing? <laughs> and, and Lori cares less than I do about <laughs> the football games. But exactly what you're saying is true, where they'll have the pre-game show and then I'll do interviews with certain players. And if she watches that, then all of a sudden now she's interested in the game and she wants that team to win because she likes that person. Yes, exactly. And that's why they do that. And yeah. then it be, it becomes not just exciting. It becomes compelling. You know, yeah. you start rooting like initially you don't have a favorite, you know, maybe by country, maybe you want the American to win or something, but you're not terribly invested in that. But as soon as you see the backstory, you start to get invested. Well, especially if there's two or three Americans in the race, then you pick one. Correct. Correct. And then you, your heart breaks if they don't win, you know, it's like, Oh, it's so intense. So that's kind of what he's describing is the plot provides all of that backstory so that then the the characters 
in the story. And I, I'm just using literary terms. I don't mean any of this is fiction. It, right. it's, it's, it's all history, but it's theological history. But, it, but you, it's delivered through literature. So I'm using literary terms. I, I don't mean that this story is fiction, obviously. Right. So the, the plot is what provides that backstory that then the characters leap off the page and you become invested in them. And then let alone Hampton, the power of the scriptures is such that you begin to realize if, if we compared the text, the Bible to the Olympics, you begin to realize you're in the Olympics. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about another concept. It's called uh, living history. And I think you like that. Uh, Charlotte Mason was an educator in England back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And she always talked about the importance of, you know, having a, I don't, historical fiction. I think you say you like that. And, <laughs> and so you read a Johnny Tremaine book about the American Revolution and you see the American Revolution through that character's eyes and it, and it gives it more. Uh, it's more memorable way more and and so this is kind of similar you're you're seeing history and and really it's not just a list of events yeah but there are stories um, about the characters and you can remember the history because you know the way it's told correct so that was a little rabbit trail, but here's where I want to get to my main point that okay. he left left out that I'm wondering why he didn't address this. Maybe it just wasn't part of his study, but it's it's critical. And I'm nowhere near the scholar Dempster is. But there was a great book written. Boy, it's been, uh, I don't know, 40 years, 30 years ago now. The, the author's a nobody and a know-nothing, but the book was called Satanic Conflict and the Plot of Matthew. And I, I think the author's name was like Robert Brandon or something like that. But, <laughs> but the what he did in that book was pinpoint the essence of plot is conflict it's the essence is not sequence sequence is a critical element well if you don't have conflict you got a boring book if you don't have conflict you don't have a plot yeah and i'm surprised he, he did not even touch on that that is interesting oversight so it you know as a it is a spiritual cosmic battle going on yes <laughs> Yes. So, for instance, if, uh, you know, the famous story, Little Red Riding Hood, if Little Red makes her lunch and takes it to her grandmother and gives it to her and they eat it, there's no story. That's, that's like, okay, great. If you put a wolf in there, now you have a story. Yeah. So... Okay, I think you were right to take him to task. 
but it's a significant one. You know what I mean? All these things, everything he's saying is correct. It's yeah. just they're they're way more correct than he even knows if if you add in the conflict part of it. So it's not just f- from Abraham or from Adam to David. It's from Adam to David against the serpent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. So that's why I wanted to to point that out. So um, we'll pick up the next little section. So uh, another paragraph further on. The point of the foregoing discussion is to show that the structure of a literary work, particularly its beginning and ending, shapes its content. The structure provides a means of organizing the vast array of information, imparting form and contour to the material, arranging the many subplots into a larger pattern. The Tanakh is not a random concatenation of texts, but a text with a discernible structure, a clear beginning, a middle, and an ending, and I would add, and a plot, (laughs) <laughs> Genesis and Chronicles are the beginning and ending, and the middle is carried with a narrative storyline into which many and various poems, much legislation, lists, building instructions, tribal boundary records, reports of visions and prophecies, and many small stories have been appropriately placed. The narrative continues until it is interrupted by a substantial block of poetic commentary from the prophet Jeremiah through the end of Lamentations, after which it resumes with Daniel and concludes with Chronicles. So let's do, um, let me introduce the next section with an example. I really want your opinion on so one of the ways that the biblical authors are telling their story you know they're they're linking things together uh craig beale is a fantastic new testament scholar i've read most of his work i've learned so much from him i sat next to him at one of the ets meetings a couple years ago in san diego and introduced myself i said um Dr. Beal, I've learned so much from you, and I really appreciate your work, and I want you to keep working hard. (laughs) uh, Spoken like a true coach. Yeah, right. And he was, you know, very appreciative. And I think people need to hear that from time to time, that you're not just doing scholarship, you're helping people. You know, I, I wanted him to know how much he helped me. So anyway, I referred to him because... He, I don't think in any of his writings, he's ever used the word link without using the adge- adjective or adverb inextricably. <laughs> so he never says it's just linked. He says it's inextricably linked. <laughs> I'm going to tell him that next time I see him. <laughs> so anyway, there's a famous section in Genesis, you know, the last section of Genesis is all about Joseph and that starts in chapter 37 and 
so many critical scholars over the years obviously recognize that. But then they go, but it, this book was clearly edited by somebody else because they threw in this story of Judah and Tamar. It has nothing to do with Joseph. So the last 13 chapters of Genesis are, you know, center around Joseph. And yet you have this one chapter that doesn't have Joseph at all. It has Judah and Tamar. And so they've, their conclusion is, wasn't written, the whole thing wasn't written by Moses. It was editors of, and I'm going, man, you guys are blind as a bat. So for instance, you know the Joseph story. And it began, you know, the brothers are jealous of him because he's dad's favorite. Right. He's dad, dad's favorite to such an extent he gets this beautiful coat. They don't. So every day they're seen. They don't just know he's, they see that he's the favorite. Okay. So it's about what can you see? So they uh, sell him into slavery. The brothers, right, push him down the ditch and then ransom him off to slavery in Egypt. Nice guys, by the way. But they go back to Jacob and they say, hey, we've here's Joseph's tunic. So this is verse 29 of chapter 37. Later, Reuben returned to the cistern to find that Joseph was not in it. He tore his clothes, returned to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. And I, where can I go? Like he was responsible. He's the firstborn and all this stuff happened on his watch. How's he going to explain his failure? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a young goat, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they brought the special tunic to their father and said, we found this. Determine now whether it is your son's tunic or not. He recognized it. And exclaimed, it's my son's tunic. So he puts the pieces together that the brothers want him to put together. But those specific words, right, in the net were, uh, we found this determine now. And the New American Standard has, please examine this. Right. And then mm -hmm. the conclusions are drawn. So next story, next chapter, Judah and Tamar. And you're like, what? So you know what happens, right? Judah. Mm -hmm. So Judah ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law as if she were a prostitute because she posed that way. I mean, that must be a strange culture, by the way, that why he's doing that. I have no idea. That doesn't resonate in our culture, but right. That, that's what he did. So then he finds out his daughter-in-law's pregnant, but not by, right, like outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. And so he's well, been out of shape. Well, it's a, that's a horrible sin. So he, he confronts her. And so verse, um, 
We'll pick it up in 24. After three months, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has turned to prostitution. And as a result, she's become pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. While they were bringing her out, she sent word to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man to whom these belong. Then she said, identify the one to whom this seal, cord, and staff belong. Judah recognized them. Now, what did it say about Jacob looking at Joseph's tunic? He recognized it. And right. so here, right? And so then here's Judah recognizing. And in the New American Standard, it doesn't say identify. It reads, then she said, please examine the exact thing the brothers said to Jacob. Please examine. And then they answered the exact way both times. Jacob says, Jacob recognized it. And then Judah recognized. So anyway, the point is, <clears throat> that's why Moses has that in there. That repetition, according, if I'm going to use Beale's terminology, inextricably links those two scenes. Well, and another reason is the dynasty reason, because Judah is where David comes from. Right? Exactly. Yes. So this isn't some other writer centuries later putting another little story in there. This is Moses trying to get us, the readers, to recognize what God's doing, mm -hmm. right? And, and isn't that Joseph's conclusion at the end of his story, right? You guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, he has come to the point of recognition. He, that, that's the whole plot that's going on. So the point I really wanted to get you to weigh in on was, so as a translator, why wouldn't you, which, whichever word you're going to use to translate the Hebrew verb nakar, that, that means to like examine, to, to recognize, you know, examine in such a way that you can identify so, and I think they use the term identify one at one point, but why wouldn't you translate it the same way in both passages so that the English reader can pick up the rec the repetition? Oh, well, you, you should. And then, you know, the guy who translated Genesis missed that connection. Right. You know, and right. So and, and probably because he's not translating, um, literarily he's he's translating more like out of a dictionary okay this ver this verb nakar what what's its definition okay it could be say, one of four yeah yeah words and you know yeah. this, this sounds better here and and yes you, you've lost yeah. the connection you've lost the repetition well send me those two verses and i will go <laughs> fix the net bible <laughs> but you so again to me, that's the value of, of Dempster. When you right. read on that macro level, 
you're you're picking up more of what these guys are saying. I think more of what most of this is saying. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's John three Nicodemus, and it talks. You know, the the question often when you're translating is is anthropos man or humanity, mm-hmm. and you know, it's talking about a whole bunch of people men and we use the word man there when it's really humanity because he's going to say and there was a certain man and so you lose the literary force of the passage mm-hmm. if you don't keep the word man there three times in a row yeah even, even though the first two times it's not really talking about males right and so you know there's there's a trade-off there trying to be I don't want to say gender inclusive, gender neutral, just being accurate. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes, so, you know, you don't, the son of man phraseology and things like that. You don't want to lose that. Correct. It's, those are difficult decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, maybe can we finish up with just this little last section? Cause there's another, um instance where two words become very important to the macro structure okay okay so now we're in this section dominion dynasty and david in genesis and chronicles so the narrative bookends of this text genesis and chronicles when he says this text he means the tanakh are very different. Genesis is about beginnings, the beginning of the world, of humanity, of sin and death, of civilization, and of the nation of Israel through the call of the patriarchs. Chronicles is largely about the Israelite nation with a focus on David, Jerusalem, and the temple. It describes the rise and fall of the southern kingdom of Judah closing with a graphic description of the Babylonian invasion of Judah, the exile of the nation, and the command by Cyrus for the Jewish exiles to return home and build the temple. Let me pause there. So there's another theme. Obviously, this is a you know 200-page book. It's a study, really. It's, it's an extended essay. But, and so, you know, I'm not going to hold Dempster... Dempster's feet to the fire to include certain things he didn't want to include. I mean, you got 200 pages to work with, right? So I'll tell you another theme that was written by Beale is, is where I learned it extensively is the theme of the temple in scripture. And man, when he laid that out before me, that tied so much together. Like again, back to the Western reader of the Bible, I don't think the guy in the pew typically perceives the Garden of Eden as a temple. But it is presented that way. Mm-hmm. And so then when you get so much material in uh, kings describing Solomon's building of the temple and then God inhabits it. That is a huge part of the story of the Bible because that's God coming back to earth to be with man again. 
it's it's huge like we've almost reached the zenith of history and yet uh fall right solomon falls so then you're going to get exile right the recurring pattern but then hampton think of the new testament and paul saying you're the you're the temple God dwells in you through his spirit. And then, of course, in the book of Revelation, last couple chapters, here's the new Jerusalem, the temple returns to earth. So it's that's a huge theme. And I don't hold Dempster accountable for not embellishing that because that, that's not his point now. But that's something to really keep in mind. Oh, so, there's a lot of themes that you can trace through the Bible. The, indeed. Indeed. So he goes on to say, despite the significant differences, there are striking similarities. So between Genesis and Chronicles. Genesis and Chronicles are virtually the only books in the Hebrew Bible saturated with genealogical lists. The narrative in Genesis is strategically punctuated with no fewer than 10 genealogical formulas for the ensuing narrative. From a Western point of view, they're the notorious, these are the generations of <laughs> formulas, right? That people kind of skip over. Right. And I understand why they do that, but all that's showing is they really have no skill in reading the text because those are critical. And by the way, back to one of our earlier points that, Dempster isn't going to mention here because he left out the significance of plot <laughs> or, or the significance of conflict for right. understanding the concept of plot. Some of those genealogies are tracing a different dynasty. Right. Yeah. The I remember you talking about that in a previous podcast. Yeah. The dynasty of the serpent. It's growing as well. <laughs> so anyway, he goes on to say, you know, these these are the notorious, these are the generations of. The genealogies and chronicles are all front-loaded as the book begins with the nine chapters of them. Nine chapters, I said seven earlier. It's nine chapters of genealogy. That's how you began your book? Wow. So uh, scholars have long been aware of the genealogical formulas in Genesis that introduce either lists or narrative as they have extended their exegetical vision beyond the immediate textual horizon. They've discovered that this tedious phraseology performs a significant hermeneutical function in a significant study, Johnson concludes, and basically he's just making that point, that it's significant. Those genealogies are not just boring material. They're at the heart of what Moses has to say. Then he picks it up. A key purpose of genealogies in some contexts is to show a divine purpose that moves history to a specific goal. It's easier to see the big picture when a wide angle lens is used to look at the canon. So let's pause here for a second. You know, I've always been amazed at how popular those websites like 23andMe or, you know, the, where you can trace your genealogy. Mm -hmm. That's really popular. Yeah. 
I've never had a desire to even look at that. I've, I mean, I'm, I, haven't, my, I haven't done any of that. I know my genie, but God's got my genie. I'm, you know, born again into his family. But that that's interesting. People really do. That does interest them, right? Because that's mm-hmm. their identity. That's what they're looking for, I think, when that's they right. do that. Right. Well, I already have my identity in Christ, so I don't, I don't need to trace historically where I go back to. But for most people, that's a very compelling story, you know, the story of their genealogy. But that's biblical. Right. That's God moving the, the story forward. Like, for instance, Adam and Eve's job description rule the earth. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, you're going to have to have some kids. Because two people can't rule this massive area. Right. So they're told, right, be fruitful and multiply. And whenever you hear that, you'll hear that numerous times in scripture to be fruitful and multiply. That's carrying forth that creation mandate, right? Put it back in its original context. That's how you rule the earth. So that's why you get so many chapters on Jacob's children, for instance. And that's also why you get this major conflict that repeats over and over again. So-and-so can't get pregnant. (laughs) So if you link that back to our concept of plot, well, who would be preventing that? Well, Satan, right? Because that's how you rule the earth. So he's going to try to prevent significant parts of that dynasty from reproducing. So anyway, let's pick up Dempster in the next paragraph. But these two books are not only about genealogy that culminates in a Davidic dynasty, though that's huge. They are about land, geography, and dominion. So again, when you see genealogy, think dynasty. When you see land, think dominion. So Genesis establishes a domain over which humans are to realize their humanity. The world is created by the command of God. The Garden of Eden becomes the prime habitat of human beings and their exile from it. Humans are expelled from the earth with the judgment of the great deluge. The post-diluvian. What's that one mean, Hampton? That's an obvious one. After the flood. There you go. The post-diluvian human community is dispersed across the face of the earth at Babel. And when Abram arrives in the historical scene, he's promised a commodity that's been in short supply for human beings, a land to call his own. He never quite gets it, except a graveyard for his wife. By the end of Genesis, his descendants are exiled in Egypt from this land of promise. From this exilic vantage point, the aged Joseph's remarks conclude the book of Genesis. I am about to die, but God will surely visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abram, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So those two words, visit, God will visit you and bring you out, up, out. So the Hebrew for visit is pakad. The Hebrew for bring you up is Allah. 
not <laughs> not not the deity of the Muslim religious right. Hebrew verb Allah. So so if that's the case, if Genesis ends that way, well, how does Chronicles end? Oh, yet by the end of Chronicles, like the end is not exile. The note of promise is the directive from Cyrus for them to return to the land and rebuild the temple. So let's read the last words of Chronicles. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, Yahweh has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may Yahweh his God be with him. Let him go up. So Joseph ended Genesis saying, God will visit you and bring you up. The end of Chronicles says, God has charged me. And that's the verb, pakad. The exact and I don't think verb. I could put, I couldn't translate that as visited there. Because it, mm. it wouldn't make any sense. God has visited me to build him a house. <laughs> right? So there's there's where your Hebrew word has multiple meanings. Mm -hmm. And so you've missed the the tie-in, the inextricable link. <laughs> oh, you're such a good student. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah. And then the go up part, that, that one's clear. Yeah. Let him go up. But so in Hebrew, it's very good. That's how you can't miss that. Mm-hmm. And how much that's tied together. And uh, so that that's all. I just wanted to point out those huge macro observations that really provide the backstory uh, to understand the content of the Bible. So maybe we stop there. We're not done with the chat, but we can finish that pretty quick next time. Okay. Well, that was very good. Thanks, Hampton. Okay, talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm -hmm.